Episode 123 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we will be pivoting away from movies for an episode to talk about our top five TV shows of 2020. But before we do that, how are you, Scott? I'm doing well. I uh, For this podcast, I crammed in the undoing uh, for the past few days. Granted, I wasn't necessarily, I didn't start it thinking that I was going to finish it for the podcast, but it was a very watchable TV show. And so we were able to finish it in the span of about two nights, essentially. Watched watched the six episodes. I mean, it's not very long. Six episodes over two days. And it was popcorn television, but uh, I guess you'll find out if it's on my list or not. Yeah, I, I gave up actually a few episodes into it. It just, it wasn't doing it for me, really, doing it for me anymore. Nicole Kidman, like, I don't know. Her acting is a little all over the place and not, no offense to her, but her like she can barely move her face anymore after all the work she's had done. So I don't know if that may have contributed to why I was not so moved by her performance at times. But um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it wasn't it didn't have the sort of soapy appeal that like a uh, big little lies had for me. So how far did you get? I think I watched all but the last two episodes. OK, I think I watched four episodes, but. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying there, not to dive into a mini yeah. review of The Undoing, but um, look, I think you spared yourself some real angst in the final two episodes being a lawyer. I think the, the courtroom scenes got a little bit out well, of hand in the last at, two episodes. As in Big Little Lies, right? As in Big Little Lies, the courtroom showdown between uh, Nicole Kidman and Meryl Streep left a lot to be desired. But anyway, um, yeah, that is a show that I think will not be making either of our lists for the top five TV shows of 2020. Nevertheless, though, it was a good year for TV. Uh, you know, we we had plenty of stuff to watch while in quarantine, not just movies. Um, and, yeah. you know, I think not to spoil what's coming ahead, but I think probably our favorite things, couple of things that we watched this year, if, you know, TV, movie, whatever, um, were were limited series um, that we're going to be talking about on on this episode. But uh, Scott, before we get there and before we get to our top fives, um, do you have a couple honorable mentions that you'd like to mention before we get into our lists? Yeah, sure. I, I'll just kind of I don't want to dive too deep into any of them. And I, do you want me to just rattle off my three and then we'll do your three or do you want to go back and forth? Just just rattle off your three and then briefly talk about them and then we can go to mine. Yeah, so some things that, that just missed out for me, you know, I watch a lot of drama series. So un unsurprisingly, I think, you know, four of my five, you know, top five are drama series. And then two of my three honorable mentions here are also drama series. So, you know, Defending Jacob, which was an early in the year Apple TV plus original series with Chris Evans and Jaden Martell. And I'm forgetting the female lead right now, but she was in Downton Abbey. Michelle Dockery. Michelle Dockery yeah. yeah, Michelle Dockery. Um, and it was about a family whose son is accused of murdering one of his classmates. And the the story is ultimately about like how far, you know, a family or specifically Chris Evans is fought like the father character uh, is willing to go to protect his family, regardless of the truth. And I, and I thought it was a very compelling TV show for that. I, mean, I will say pretty much everything that I'm listing here 
in my top five and honorable mentions, I would give at least four stars out of five to like definitely eight out of 10 series. All these are definitely watchable. I uh, would strongly recommend them. But yeah, defending Jacob, really good. Uh, Chris Evans, I think, has proven time and time again. I mean, pretty much everything I've seen in, outside of the MCU for me, proving that he can do more than just the MCU, just be more than just Captain America, uh, whether it's Knives Out or this defending, you know, this stuff here with defending Jacob and other projects moving forward that he is atta- attached to. I'm really interested in, and I think he's quickly becoming an actor who, if his name's attached to it, I'm entertained and I want to see what it's about. And I think defending Jacob does that well, but you know, he's not the only good member of this cast. Jaden Martell is good. Michelle Dockery is good. I was a big fan of hers all the way back from Downton Abbey, but um, her accent's a little questionable uh, in this one. But besides that, uh, really good overall show. I didn't love the, I think the, the ending is what kept this from be- breaking into my top five. I found it to be interesting, but um, like the last 45 minutes of the show where the resolution sort of like the resolution of the show kind of already happens. And then there's like this epilogue that's most of the final episode that I thought was a bit unnecessary. Um, but yeah, that, that was, that kind of docked it, I'd say like a point or so out of 10, but that's okay. Um, really good show overall. Another drama series, uh, that is, I'm a big fan of, especially, and I think anybody who's a fan of like period detective pieces will be a big fan of, and that's Perry Mason uh, on HBO earlier this year. I think this, this was over the summer. Uh, I'm sure this was like probably one of the more expensive TV shows that they've produced. Uh, you know, I, I guess I was at the beginning of the year, people were all talking about, Oh, like game of Thrones is ever now they're going to be able to throw a lot of money at shows because game of Thrones is just so much of their budget that they had every single year. And understandably. So I think with what they were doing with that sort of fantasy realm and, uh, everything going on there, but they were able to pump that money into things like, um, Perry Mason and a bunch of other shows, you know, which may or may not come up over the course of the podcast. And I think that to great reward here, I think Perry Mason is really well done. You know, if you enjoyed the like vibe of something like Mank in terms of its atmosphere and like old Hollywood ish, you know, you get a little bit of that. It's not black and white, but you get a little bit of that in Perry Mason. And then you get a detect sort of very hard boiled noir detective story with the sort of undertones of something like a true detective, if you're into that. So it's a fusion of a bunch of different things. And I really appreciated it for that. I think that I wasn't electrified like I might be by, you know, several of, of the better seasons of a true detective, like seasons one and season three. I was really electrified by those shows and I wasn't didn't quite get that electricity from uh, their performances in this one. I think that, you know, whether I'm forgetting the Lee's name, he's in the Americans, he's in Matthew Reese, Matt, Matthew Reese. That's what it is. Matthew Reese, like he is a good Perry Mason, but I just didn't feel like and Tatiana Maslany was good. But like it's just something about like the performances didn't all they didn't seem to like <coughs> mesh all that well fully together. And I think that this will definitely be coming back for future seasons. So I'm wondering if they can do some more work to flush that out a little bit more and maybe get that over the crest of, you know, something that would be in my top five, but again, eight out of 10 show, I'd say, you know, four stars. Um, and the final thing here is, and and I want to acknowledge that I don't think it's final season was the best season of the show, but it's a show that, you know, I watched in the last few months collectively. And it's impossible. I think not to mention it in the year of 2020, you know, I was a bit skeptical at the time of the Emmys when it swept every pretty much every comedy award. But Schitt's Creek is like such a lovable show. It's, you know, I was a bit skeptical, kind of I really be like, oh, like, is it really that good? It's, you know, sort of an arrested development development type premise of rich family loses all their money and has to figure out the consequences of that. But the place that it goes is just such like a, you know, a, a big warm hug, like a nice cozy blanket in the year that is 2020, because um, it's so heartfelt. It's such well. It, it's so well acted by 
you know, Dan Levy and Eugene Levy, who are the two creators of the show. And then um, Annie Murphy and Catherine O'Hara, who like round up the family. Like it's just such a great dynamic, great charisma, uh, good feel. Season six, which was its final season, the one that came out this year, probably not the highlight of the series. Probably four or five is the highlight of the series for me, but it still did enough to to sneak onto an honorable mention. I don't, it wouldn't have come in my top five, but if you're looking for a new sitcom or just kind of a, a very, you know, kind of warm blanket type show to watch during these times, if you know, if you're celebrating the holidays by yourself because of COVID or something like that, you, you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not checking out Shit's Creek. It's a really, uh, really fantastic uh, sitcom. And that's coming from someone who, I mean, I shouldn't say notoriously because we don't talk about TV shows that much on the podcast. But, it, you know, if you know me outside the realm of this podcast and TV shows, like, I'm not a fan of sitcoms. I really don't like them that much. Uh, but Shit's Creek really did it for me. It was really good. Yeah, Scott, you know, it's weird when I when it comes to TV, I'm somebody who will like window shop, so to speak, sometimes. And I will mm -hmm. sample an episode or two of shows uh, here and there. And you name two shows that I've sampled, Perry Mason and Defending Jacob. Um, but I don't know, just didn't really get into either one of them, despite both of them sort of having legal drama elements to them. Uh, and I actually have read the book of Defending Jacob, too. So I was interested to watch. And I will say, like it. Um, it had really good acting. That was the, the one takeaway that I had yeah. from a few episodes I watched. I don't know. I don't really know what it was that, uh, you know, why I kind of abandoned it. the wrong time. Middle. You know, just not what you're looking for at that time. Yeah. I, and, you know, sometimes it's like, um, you know, I'll be watching something like that and I'll be like enjoying it, but not like super into it. And then I'll see something else come out and I'll watch it and I'll get like really into it. Like I think Perry or um, Defending Jacob might've been around the same time as a show that I'm going to mention here in just a second. And that I was, you know, was more into that um, is maybe a reason why I, and then Perry Mason. Yeah. I mean, like I used to watch the old Perry Mason uh, like shows on, on like, you know, reruns on TV land, whatever I had, I think I even had some DVDs of it um, when I was younger and, you know, just getting into legal, legal stuff. But um, yeah, I don't know that I only watched the first episode. So I know, I know it, it probably picks up a little bit after that, but uh, it didn't, didn't grab me from the beginning. It was not exactly what I was looking for from that show, but um, maybe it gets better down the line. So, yeah, I mean, it's not really a legal drama. I mean, ultimately it's yeah, it's more of a procedure. I mean, yes, yeah, it does come into, you know, there are some courtroom elements later on in the show that like, if you're coming for a courtroom, something that's not the show you want to check out if you're looking for something yeah. in the courtroom. Sure. Sure. Um, but Scott, onto my honorable mentions. Uh, the first one is The Last Dance, which is something I think everybody, like most of our listeners, will probably be familiar with. This was something that was really fun to watch during COVID because it was like event television on Sunday night. Like when when Last Dance was on, everyone, and I mean everyone, was tweeting about it. And like I never watched Game of Thrones back in the day, but Game of Thrones was kind of the same way during its like peak. Um, so it was fun to like be able to participate in that and be like watching and seeing what everyone was talking about with uh this on Twitter, of course, I'm talking about the ESPN documentary series, uh, part of their 30 for 30 um, series, which is just outstanding. Almost everything, every 30 for 30 you can watch as part of it. It's is. part of 30 for 30. I, didn't know that. I, I believe it. I believe it is. Yeah. Um, but um, it's it was eight parts uh, about the final season of uh, the 1998 season of the Chicago Bulls with uh, Michael Jordan and his final season you know, quote unquote final season at the time, you know, he obviously came back, uh, came out of retirement and played for the Wizards. Um, but yeah, uh, that so it was it was all about that season, but also tracing back through Michael Jordan's career. And I really enjoyed it. It's, you know, at, at, whether you're a sports fan or not, like I saw people who weren't even super 
big into sports were getting into it just because I think it's 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 history first and foremost. Like you're talking about someone, Michael Jordan, who I think transcends just like admiration from sports fans. Like I think he is a historical figure uh, for the contribution that he made to like American culture. And so I think the show is a lot about that. Um, and it was not what I really liked about it is not it was not as much of a puff piece as you might have expected for like, oh, Michael Jordan's the greatest of all time. And, you know, he obviously participated in it and had a lot of interviews. It took a pretty unflinching look at him and, um, you know, kind of revealed him to be a uh, a sort of petty and spiteful. And uh, in, in a lot of, you know, there's there's a lot of crazy stories about how a player like a player would say thank you to him or like good game after a game. And that and that would set him off so much because this guy said good game to him um, after the other team won or something that he would then go out in the next game and just like score 60 points on the guy just to make, prove a point. So uh, just sort of interesting into the, to look into the psyche of what somebody in like Michael Jordan's field has to do to get, to be the best, to get to the top. But so that's the last dance. Um, another show on Netflix uh, that was sadly canceled after one season, which is crazy because Netflix will usually give a green light to a second season for almost anything. But with COVID, I think that probably had something to do with it, with them being more hesitant to order second seasons, maybe for shows that didn't quite perform as they had hoped in their first season. But yeah, uh, probably they, probably more for production timelines than anything, less because of budget and more because of just eliminating time, you know, in the production studios because of COVID, yeah. they have higher priority projects for. Teenage Bounty Hunters was one such a show, though, and that that's the show I want to highlight. I think this was the show that was coming out around Defending Jacob, maybe, and I got sucked up into this. But, yeah, this show is definitely up my alley. Uh, the title says it all. I think Teenage Bounty Hunters, uh, it's about these two girls, uh, twin sisters uh, in Georgia. Um, that's another thing I like about the South setting. Uh, I, I thought added for some interesting color. But um, in Georgia, who through a strange series of events, you know, you know, end up assuming the identities of bounty hunters and then discover that, hey, they can actually make some money off of this um, and go into uh, a side job as bounty hunters working for this longtime bounty hunter named um, Bowser, who played by Kadeem Hardison in a really great performance. But also Maddie Phillips and Angelica Bettfellini were the actresses who played um, the twin sisters and especially Angelica Bettfellini. They were both really funny um and re really strong characters but uh angelica bettfellini her character was more of like the loose cannon sort of you know rebel a little bit and then maddie phillips her character is more of the buttoned up um you know sort of like class president type at their all-girls school you know there's there, there's some like religious satire that i was really worried about going on because the first scene was like very the very first scene of the first episode i was like oh no i don't know that i'm gonna like this because it was going it was it was pushing it was over the line in my opinion but um but then it i think they settled into it and found a really nice some really nice satire throughout and the twist that happens with uh maddie phillips character towards the end um i mean you know i could spoil it because the show's not going to come on anymore but um but you should still go back and watch the 10 episodes because it's satisfying on its own. But the twist that happens with her character, you don't see coming, but it's really interesting, I think. But anyway, I, I highly recommend it despite it getting canceled. It's a fun, breezy 10 episode watch. It has a lot of laughs and fun characters. I'm really sad that it got canceled. Um, I wish Netflix had taken more of a chance on it, but uh, 
not the only show I am going to talk about tonight that unfortunately was was canceled after only one season. But uh, really enjoyed Teenage Bounty Hunters, and then a show that will be coming back for its third season on Netflix sometime. It, it would normally be coming back um, right about this month. Uh, is Sex Education, um, and I'm not sure if I talked about the show last year. And and honestly, the January release I think is a reason why this doesn't make my top hasn't made my top five because I just kind of like it wanes in my memory, obviously, because it's been a whole year since I watched the show. Um, Are you sure it hasn't been 10 years I, since you watched it? I feel like it's been that Yeah, long. seriously. If I had watched it in the last couple of months, it probably would have been in my top five for sure. Because I love this show. I really do. It is super smart and funny, and it has some of the most uh, warm and likable characters. Uh, the, I mean, the three leads, you have Asa Butterfield as Otis, you have Emma Mackey as Maeve, and you have Nakuti Gatwa as Eric. And uh, all three of them are such great characters, some of the best characters on TV. Um, right now. And obviously Jillian Anderson as well, playing um, Otis's mom, who's a sex therapist. Jean is her name. And yeah, that's kind of the concept of the show is that Otis is, uh, Otis is this sort of buttoned up, reserved kid, uh, shy kid at his high school. And uh, his mom is a sex therapist though. And so uh, because of that, you know, uh, experience living with her and her being very, you know, open about sexuality and stuff, he decides to start a sex like advice clinic at his high school for uh, kids in this like abandoned bathroom in the back of the school. Uh, but he recruits to help him, uh, Maeve played by Emma Mackey, who's fantastic, I think, in, in the show, but um, she's probably the best character to me, but um, she's sort of like this bad girl, but of course there's more to her than that, but uh, you know, has more experience with the things that they're giving advice about. Um, so there's a nice sort of counterbalancing going on between them uh, there and then, of course, there is sort of like a will they won't they relationship type thing that develops between Otis and Maeve, which I think is is really strong. And Eric again is another strong character of Otis's best friend. So, uh, if you're looking for a coming of age show, this is like as as good as you can get right now. It's it's really really good. It's really uh, again smart uh, and you know it's it definitely is uh, more explicit than uh, honestly like. I, I was going to say them teen shows, but uh, it's about as explicit as any show out there probably as you can find to be quite honest with you. But, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing given the subject matter. I think it would have been really weird to have a show that is sort of toned down and, and lukewarm, but you know, know that going into it, I guess, if you're someone who is easily offended by that type of stuff. But um, yeah, sex education, unfortunately it got delayed again, season three, but it will be coming out at some point. And I uh, highly anticipate it because this is uh, this is a great show. Sterling and Blair. Yes, of course. Blair is the Angelica Bethlehem. Yeah. Go watch uh, yeah. Teenage Bounty Hunters. A lot of fun. Like, like my honorable mentions, Scott, um, for you, I have not seen any of yours. Sex <laughs> Education is is on my list. I, that's one that I really probably don't expect to get to. Um, just with my backlog, if I if I rate it on my backlog, it's, it's a long way down the list. Who knows, though? I think I you would really enjoy it. I do, Scott. Yeah, I know look, you're not as big into coming of age as I am. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to be bigger into coming of age as, as you because you're such a big fan. And I don't, I don't mean that in any sort of like slight. It's just like mm-hmm. really, it's hard to compare that. Um, but for me, it, it's mainly because I mean, candidly, you're the only person I don't have that. I don't talk to you about TV shows to that many people. But the other well, people I talk surprising. to are not a huge fan of sex education. Other people, other of my friends that oh, I've you talked know people to, who don't enjoy it. Wow, I'm season shocked. two at least. Season two, at least. Um, wow. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, so it fell I, down my ladder a little bit. I will say there is one character that 
I don't necessarily love what they're doing with him. Adam is the character. He's the principal's son. Um, and yeah, I, I know which character you're talking about. I mean, we don't need to find, Yeah. Yeah. His character is a little problematic, but like, it's still a, a fantastic show. And most of the people I know that watch it enjoy it. So that's interesting to get that perspective. From. Yeah. I mean, the, the people that I, the people actually who like it less just think that it's a little cheesy and not, and like not that good writing. Um, but nah. huge throne. Too yeah. easy. Well, there. anyway, Scott, uh, we can get into our top five. Well, I was going to say okay. Teenage Bounty Hunters and Last Dance, though. Those are both two shows that are towards the top. I mean, especially The Last Dance is definitely towards the top of my list of, of well, my so background. You actually are going to watch Teenage Bounty Hunters despite it getting canceled. Okay, cool. Maybe, maybe. I mean, if you tell me that I shouldn't because it ends on a cliffhanger and it's just going to leave me leaving disappointed, then I'll probably. I, I was sitting act. here actually trying to remember how it ended if it was on a cliffhanger. But so memorable. Such a memorable show. It was, but. Um, yeah, take the piss if you want, but it was. It was great. <laughs> but anyway, um, I think it's still. Yeah, even if it doesn't, not a cliffhanger. I think you can still get a lot out of it. Well, one of the shows All that right. I know we're going to talk about in a little bit, it, it, that that's a very similar type. I think target audience for the show is probably one that I am going to actually watch and would watch before I watch uh, Teenage Bounty Hunters. But we'll save that for a second. Okay, cool. Um, I'm excited to talk about that then. All right, uh, you're number five, Scott. Yeah, my number five, we talked about this show at length last year. It was both, but the first season of the show was on both of our top 10 lists. And I actually think that this was a better season. Uh, it's weird if we compare top five lists from last year. I mean, I think this was like four on my list last year. And my top three are just like so good last year. I think it was like Chernobyl, um, Unbelievable, Watchmen. Watchmen, and then Unbelievable, which are three amazing shows. And I think it really dropped off after this. I actually think that this is my number five. Like, I actually think this was better. Like, the second season was better than the first season. And that show is The Mandalorian, something that I thought was, like, was, I mean, when it was good last year in season one, it was really, really good. But there was just too many episodes for me last year that just dragged, you know, whether it's, I think it's episodes, like, basically the even episodes, I thought, with the exception of the finale, really dragged like two, two, four, and six, I think, especially were like pretty slow episodes um, for me. But this season, it took a little while to get started. That's like the one caveat that I have. I think episode one was, I think it was good, but it was a little unnecessarily long. Like it was a super long episode, uh, like way longer than any of the other episodes I think had been in the show. And then episode two really felt like, you know, one of the lowest points in the series. But then from three onwards, I really felt like it clicked, like everything in the show clicked. And it really reached its heights. So, you know, that is what's kind of pushed it into the top five for me as sort of like, you know, a, a high eight, you know, almost a nine out of 10 ser type series for me in, in that because the le like the scope and the level of action and the characters really felt like they came together in this. Like a lot of times it just felt like a really cool Star Wars story last season, whereas like this time and you'd set with these characters of Mando and you know, what eventually became, uh, you know, Grogu or the child uh, th this season, like their bond really, really formed even further than it had last season. You understood it a little bit better, I think. And then the characters they were able to add in, like, you know, you didn't get as much from, is it Billy Weathers, his character? I can't remember the Carl, Carl, Weathers. Carl, Car Billy Weathers. Jeez. I don't even know what that is carl weathers uh like he he's not a character a character i thought he was going to come back this season but basically didn't uh, the only real recurring character he directed an episode though actually yeah he, he kind of the one that he appeared in yeah 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 um which i thought was a bit surprising it's like episode three maybe or four i can't remember yeah um, it was, it was somewhere in there. yeah but gina carano who's like basically the only recurring character to like actually come back in the show in a meaningful way thought she was good although wouldn't surprise me if she gets written out because of her politics her stuff, that she's yeah. been putting on display on Twitter for whatever reason. 
Um, but I thought, I thought she was pretty good, and I thought we, you know, we discussed last year how she was a really good addition to the to the supporting cast of the show, and then how they integrated a lot of these other characters, even, even maybe lesser or equal roles to something like a Gina Carano. Um, you know, whether it's you know Tamara Morrison's Boba Fett and what they did with that character, you know, that's something that we talked about on our, you know, in the news section of our podcast in the past about being really concerned about. I thought they did a really good job with Boba Fett in the season. I was really surprised by that. I liked how they brought back the uh, like the the sniper assassin woman as well from who was in one episode last season as as Boba Fett's sort of sidekick who saved her in the desert on Tatooine. Vinic, yeah, yeah, Vinic. That's right. Yeah, um, Vinic, yeah. and yeah, Vinic. And so I like that character. And then how they gave Ahsoka her one episode in the show to eventually, I guess, spin off into a new series, which you know that's a separate conversation maybe, but like her one episode I thought was really meaningful. And so I just really, I really feel like it clicked into a set of a rhythm or a set of gears in the last, you know, you know, the last three quarters of the season that were as good as almost anything star Wars you could think of, uh, you know, up there in the top tier of star Wars type things. Like if you, if you want Scott, we can discuss the the ending in the last episode. I'm on the, like, I'm just, I just kind of shrug at it. It doesn't, Look, it didn't throw me over the moon. Um, the particular character that makes an appearance in the last episode, um, it didn't piss me off either. It didn't upset me. I just thought it was fine. It didn't surprise me. I was all, I was, I, I'm not going to say that I was expecting it because that's not true, but you know, it seemed a, a logical way in the story, right? It, that it made sense to me. It didn't feel like it was outlandish that they were just trying to rope in this really famous character into the show. I didn't feel that way for me. I'm sure that there are people out there, maybe you that feel that way, but leave that aside from the last episode. I mean, that last episode is so cool. Like what they do with the giant star destroyer, the different fight scenes they have in that, how they board it, you know, the space combat, all of it's so good. Uh, really love the Mandalorian season two and can't wait for season three, but we're not going to get it next year. It's being pushed back, I believe, or at least probably not its production, but it's um, release is pushed back to make room for a spinoff series for Boba Fett uh, called the book of Boba Fett. Um, which looks like it could be really interesting what they're doing with that character as he sort of concludes the season as, you know, spoilers here. So if you want to, if you want to avoid spoilers, fast forward 15 or 30 seconds here, but he ends kind of retaking Jabba the Hutt's palace on Tatooine. So a really interesting setup for that spinoff show. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed Mando season two as well, Scott. Um, I think it had some of the highest highs of the series so far, the highest being that Ahsoka episode for me with Rosario Dawson um, as uh, Ahsoka, I thought yeah. was the, the best episode of the series yet. Um, it didn't make my list or my honorable mentions because of sort of what happened at the end that you were alluding to there. Um, and it's not that I'm like outrageously bothered by it, but I am. It it concerns me about the direction that they are going in for future Star Wars content with this character, um, and and what they are going to do with this character going forward. Because it seems like we can never actually move on from this character, unfortunately even though he got a perfect end to his story arc in The Last Jedi. But um, but I think that... Um, You're look, talking about Adam Driver's character? Everyone's watched it by now uh, who wanted to watch it. But um, maybe. But like, I, I don't know. It, it just seems like this could be a way to slowly do away with a certain portrayal of this character that... Um, You're talking a about Yoda, right? a, a subset of the fans... Uh, we're not, we're not, did not appreciate, but that I appreciate it very much. So that's the only thing that concerns me about it. If this was sort of a one-off thing in a vacuum, fine, great, whatever. I agree with you. I think it probably makes sense with the story, but 
Um, like, you know, the thing for me is like the, the character work from the other, the new characters has been so strong that I'm just like, it's unnecessary, right? Like we, I'm, I'm, I was very invested in the story and very invested in the characters in that last episode. We didn't need to bring back somebody who, you know, I, I know super well from, um, from past Star Wars stuff. Um, and like the most emotional moment and the moment that I appreciated the most in that last episode was between um, Pedro Pascal as the Mandalorian and Grogu, the child. It wasn't anything to do with the character, you know, from the past coming back. So totally. um, yeah. I do think it's a really strong show. I do think Dave Filoni um, and John Favreau have done a good job of, you know, making some of the best Star Wars stuff since The Last Jedi. Um I just hope that, and, and I like what they did with Boba Fett and bringing Finnick back, I think was great. Ming-Na Wen playing Finnick. And then uh, you didn't mention another one of my favorite characters, Bo-Katan played by Katie yeah. Zakoff, I thought was really, really good. And her and Finnick going ham in the last episode was one of my favorite parts of the series yeah. as well. So I'm excited and to see. Giancarlo Esposito was good too. Sure, as Moff Gideon. Um, but yeah, it's it's a good show. It's a really good show. And I'm, I'm, definitely, I'm definitely not like out on the Mandalorian or future Star Wars stuff or anything. But uh, I just wish that that one thing hadn't happened. I mean, like, I think it season three will be a really interesting just talk about the future for a little bit. I think season three is going to be really interesting because like the premise of the show in theory, unless, you know, unless some weird twist happens, like, I don't know if Grogu is coming back in this show anymore, just based on how it ends. Like it's pivoting more towards, you know, the Mando understanding and appreciating and deciding, you know, what he wants to fight for and, you know, how he identifies whether as like as a Mandalorian and what kind of Mandalorian he is. Right. Which, which I think is interesting. Like it's it's going to make season three, I think, a big turning point. Now, maybe they don't have plans to carry the show on beyond season three anyway. But how this next season goes and the direction the story goes and how they're able to deliver sort of new sort of emotional arcs. Right. That don't involve a small, you know, child <laughs> will be interesting. And I think it will be very telling to see if this if this show has legs to keep going further and can live beyond just the central dynamic of Mando and Grogu, which ultimately the, the show kind of relied on for the last two seasons. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, so that's Mando season two. Scott, my number five is another Netflix coming of age series, Outer Banks. Um, yep. You know, you mentioned The Undoing sort of being their popcorn television for this year. That was definitely what Outer Banks fulfilled for me because this is not like, on the quality level of even some of the stuff like that I mentioned in my honorable mentions, like sex education and the last dance. But um, this show was just so much fun to watch. So enjoyable. Again, it came out in quarantine. It has a really summery vibe. It's set in the outer banks of North Carolina. It was actually filmed in Charleston, but um, you know, similar uh, feel. Um, but uh, so, so that was, you know, it was really fun to watch when we we're all cooped up inside and everything and watch this adventure um, series, but yeah, it's about a group of four teenagers who are all sort of from the wrong side of the tracks, so to speak, in uh, in the Outer Banks of uh, North Carolina. There's John B, who's sort of like the charismatic leader. They're known as the Pogues, these friends. Um, John B is like their charismatic leader, um, and then there's um, there's Pope, who is sort of like the intellectual uh, of the group. There's JJ, who is the loose cannon, will like fight anybody. Um, and then there's Kiara, who is like the tomboy, uh, you know, female who is uh, part of their group as well. Um, and they end up like uncovering a treasure map. Uh, I don't want to say too much, but they end, end up uncovering a treasure map. And um, a lot of that, a lot of the rest of the series is about them um, searching for this treasure to sort of give themselves the lives that they haven't been able to have, but they, that they've always wanted. Um, and uh 
and you know some things about John B's past and his father in particular um, end up getting enmeshed with the uh, adventure that they're going on. Um, and he has a romance with uh, this girl Sarah, who is sort of uh, uh, you know comes from wealth and uh, is not like the the Pogues, but she ends up um, you know finding sort of a home unlikely home with the Pogues too. So that's kind of a fun dynamic that happens. But yeah, like I said, this show is it's soapy, uh, but it's it's exciting. It has you know romance. It has um, again, likable characters, you know, maybe not like the, the dialogue isn't always like the, uh, the best you'll ever hear for sure, but, um, it has this fair amount of cheesy moments, but you know, that's what I want, kind of wanted from a show like this. I think the show delivered on what I wanted. And what I will say is the show really sticks the landing. I thought the last episode was probably the best of the whole series, uh, of the first season. Um, I, I thought they, they did a really, really good job of wrapping up, uh, or, you know, of having a satisfying, um, not conclusion, so to speak, but uh, satisfying payoff to a lot of storylines and then setting up for season two. And it is getting a season two and they've already been filming season two, as a matter of fact. So um, this is one which we might actually get a second season next year uh, or I guess this year now, 2021 now. So maybe late this year, we'll see a second season of this because I know that they have been filming as some of my friends who live in Charleston, apparently, uh, I think saw them filming a couple of times, but uh, but yeah, um, so I, whenever it comes out, I'm excited. Um, I think this is a, a super fun sort of teen drama that maybe sort of harkens back to like the 90s era a little bit uh, when when teen dramas were sort of all the rage. So really enjoyed Adam Banks. Yeah, no, th this is the show that I was talking about that felt like mm -hmm. it's one, you know, sort of popcorn-y like Teenage Bounty Hunters. And, you know, obviously it's not the same because Teenage Bounty Hunters is two sisters and this is, you know, kind of a you know a gang of, of of people for the lack of a better word and yeah look it's kind of like the sun-kissed vibe to it of being in you know the outer banks and is definitely meant to be that sort of like you know i think it it came out in april but it's meant to be like the sort of like early summer tv escapist show. yeah yeah exactly and i had it like i had it on my next thing to watch list so many times but uh a certain show that's going to be our number one got in the way of me watching it at the time and uh, after that, I just kept going to the next thing and the next thing, and I just never got around to Outer Banks. But I do plan on getting around to it because it is coming back for a second season. You obviously praise it quite a bit here as it's number five on your list in a year of some quite good television. And I think, you know, maybe most importantly is that you're right. Like, not only do we know it's coming back, but it's been filming. I don't know if it's still filming or not, but it was started filming back in August. So this thing is, you know, well underway, if not already completely filmed and just needs to be edited and produced and whatnot. So definitely coming back and coming back, I'd imagine sooner rather than later, as the well of infinite content starts to be able to come a little less infinite, I think, over the next few months as um, production restarts, right? But there's this sort of gap in what's been produced already and what's been filmed and what can actually be released. I was just looking at my release calendar that I had, and it's, and it's always a little bit slower in January, don't get me wrong, but the only thing that it's like coming out for a while on my like release list for TV shows is WandaVision, um, which obviously that's nothing to sneeze at, but that's not very much. That's one episode a week uh, starting in a couple weeks. So I think that Netflix will do what they can probably to get this out as quickly as possible, unless they do have more things in their backlog than I'm currently tracking. And it's a pop. It was a popular show too. It definitely Absolutely. hit the teenage audience and stuff that it was going for. The like social media presence and stuff was really strong for it. I so many white girls that I know were talking about John B for about for months and months and their crush on John B, which is fine. Um, but yeah, so that I feel like the Tiger King rage 
uh, like like washed right over into Outer Banks. Like it, yeah. Right when like the the downturn of like, all right, Tiger King's been out for like two or three months now. What's the next thing we're gonna watch? Oh, we'll watch the Outer Banks. Like that That's really fair. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, Scott. What's your number four? Yeah, my number four, I think, is gonna be one that you haven't seen, or at least I think you mentioned not having not seen it, and that's a a show that is definitely one of those that I was talking about earlier with Perry Mason, where you get to take all of your Game of Thrones budget and really invest it into something different that's not Game of Thrones. Although it does still have sort of fantastical elements uh, in it, although it is firmly set on Earth, and that show is Lovecraft Country, a very different type of television show. I sort of entered it thinking that it was going to be, yes, obviously there was going to be this sort of angle of racism and dealing with racism um, particularly against black people and, you know, just in general, people of color for, or, you know, people of different ethnic origins than white people, I guess is like the best way to describe it, um, which it certainly does. But I guess what I what I thought when I originally was going to break it was that it would be much more, you know, horror and monster. I mean, it is very horror, but like very monster heavy. Like I thought it was going to be monster horror for the most part. I mean, and that's H.P. Lovecraft. So, yeah, you know, exactly. It, right. And I thought, I thought, I thought it was going to lean more into that. But in the first episode, it certainly does. Don't get me wrong. The first episode is is very much that. But it really is so much more like so much more dialed in and so much more focused on, you know, racism and the experiences of of black people and other people of color in the U.S. And yes, it's not set in the present day. It's set uh, in the 60s. It, it's set, I think, during you know, at or about right before the civil rights movement. And, you know, the characters are from Chicago. They take trips across the country. But the show is really about these characters' experiences. And, yes, there are Lovecraftian monsters on the periphery as well. And there's certain some some Lovecraftian um, fantastical elements to the show that it relies on to drive the plot forward. But ultimately, it's just about these characters and their experiences and how, you know, racism was the real monster we met along the way and uh jonathan majors who was i'll be really honest like jonathan majors is like the reason that i watch this show because i think he is one of you know the hottest up-and-coming black male actors up there with like lakeith stanfield daniel kaluuya who are maybe like a little bit further along and breaking out uh onto the hollywood scene i think jonathan majors is right behind them like he's you know he was in last black man in san francisco last year lovecraft country was a, a huge you know flag in the ground for him this year and he's going to be kang you know a major marvel villain in both ant-man 3 quantum mania and probably if i had to guess some other marvel movies as well like i think he's definitely a candidate for someone who could be you know if not like a thanos you know scope vict uh villain but something that could span multiple marvel movies again it's kind of hard to tell right now you know the quantum realm is such an important part of the mcu so it, it could span across multiple movies something like a you know doctor strange in the multiverse of madness and some other movies that might be connected to that or something like that who knows but jonathan majors is great it's fantastic journey journey smollett is also in the show as letty who is like the female lead of the show but this show just has like a lot it is really ends up being an ensemble cast courtney b vance has a few episodes he's not in every episode but he has a few episodes and i think he makes a really meaningful impact um, Jamie Chung, who is, is Korean American, I believe, has a small but I think very meaningful and impactful role in this as well. And then, you know, once upon a time, Elizabeth Debicki was going to be in the show, but she was replaced by Abby Lee after she backed out, which was a real womp. Uh, Abby Lee is is good in this show. Don't get me wrong. I think the the role is not ultimately. This isn't a big spoiler, but like the role is like a minor role, like important for the plot and the narrative, but is not a, not a role that gets a lot of screen time. 
So it wouldn't have made it wouldn't have made waves for her. I don't think. Um, we, we probably got the better end of the deal with her being in tenant rather than this. So. I mean, if that was the trade off, then I, yeah. I think so personally. Sure. Uh, but yeah, there, there's a whole bunch of other people in this cast as well. Wumi Mosaku uh, plays like this L- Letty's sister who has a really, I think, powerful, powerful role in the series. And, and I think one of the one of the things that sets the series apart, and I think what makes it number four for me is like, yes, it, it is this really interesting like mix of horror um both exploring like social issues with this monster horror, but also with this adventure story as well. Like the story is ultimately like a story about adventure. And it's about this, these people going on an adventure to un- like better understand their history, how it connects to some, like basically a cult that is like a part of this, like Lovecraft world that, that Lovecraft created um, called the silver twilight, um, the silver twilight cult. And, how they're all interconnected, interwoven and, and how racism plays a part in, in so many of those things is, is like the show. Like that is the story of the show. And these characters are super interesting and it explores them in really complicated ways that are not straightforward. You know, Atticus who is Jonathan majors character is someone who is like the hero of the show, but at, at times he also feels a little bit like a villain. And the show really explores this notion that, you know, people who are like there are cycle there are cycles of trauma right like Atticus is someone who experienced trauma as a kid and continues to experience trauma as he grows older as a black man in America but he also perpetuates um you know cycles of if not violence then like emotional trauma and you know it, it's an imperfect world and it uses Lovecraft who is an incredibly racist person like so much racism was integrated into his writing takes that sort of you know, foundation and explores that through a lens of racism and the stories that it tells. I'm just, I'm not really getting into detail because it would be spoilers, but like the stories it tells across like probably five or six or seven or eight characters, like tons of characters in the show um, and, and how it explores the relationships between them. So like, like between black people in America, but also between black people in America and their, you know, white counterparts is really interesting. And I think one of the most fascinating parts of this show actually is that you know, I've been a big fan of this sort of companion pod out of their series. You know, they did one for Watchmen last year. They did one for um, the plot against America early this year. They did one for McMillions, the documentary series earlier this year. Big fan of those, and I highly recommend those. But it really feels like sort of like required viewing. It, when you're watching the show, you know, like you turn off the episode, you go watch, you go listen to the episode of the podcast, which I believe is. One of the writers on the show and uh, her, their names are Shannon and Ashley. I'm forgetting their last names right now. Um, but the one of the writers on the show and then another person who is in like, I, I suppose, in like the podcasting business or something like that. And they, and they just have this like really candid conversation about like one, you know, on one side, what's going on in the writer's room when they're thinking about these characters and writing these stories and exploring these themes. And also, um, you know, another person sort of like academic perspective almost of sort of dissecting the race relations in the show and the themes they're exploring. And it really feels like something as someone who, you know, really enjoys or really enjoyed being in college and thinking about things through an academic lens. Like that's not something that I get to do very often. And then actually getting to to take this like in some way, like event television type show for Lovecraft Country, dissect its themes and race relations and things in a more academic setting in the form of the podcast, and then go back and continue to watch and, you know, go through that cycle and explore it that way. And it really sort of scratched. And, you know, this is something that I devoured, right? This, this was not like binge worthy television for me because it's very heavy. You need to go through it slowly. And so I liked like, you know, once every you know couple weeks, basically, I'd watch an episode, listen to an episode of the podcast, think about it, dissect, you know, digest it and go back in, you know, a week or two's time. And that was a really interesting way to 
go through the series and go through the podcast episodes. And it was really rewarding. And I'd recommend someone if, you know, if you're on the fence about doing it, do it. And then listen to the episodes of the podcast. If it's something, something that might be interesting, because it was a really different sort of type of content to be consuming because this show isn't like anything else that I watched this year, except, you know, the closest thing would be plot against America about, you know, Jewish relations in the U S but this feels like it's even a step further and deeper uh, than that. And I really appreciated that. Yeah, this is definitely one I want to watch, uh, kind of like Outer Banks for you. I think this is uh, pretty high on my list. And maybe when TV shows, when new stuff starts to thin out a little bit next year, like we're kind of expecting, then uh, I could definitely see this being one I pick up and watch. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, yeah, you know, you've, you've spoken highly of it. And um, it sounds like it's telling an important story, kind of like Watchmen was last year. So, um, yeah. yeah, so I, I'm definitely uh, interested in checking this one out when I get the chance. Um, but now my number four, Scott, and this is the show that I was alluding to that un was unfortunately canceled as well after season one, uh, High Fidelity, um, which is based uh, off of the book by Nick Hornby, which was also adapted into a film in 2000 starring John Cusack. Uh, I actually haven't read the book or seen the movie, but um, I decided to watch this show because it's very heavily based around the music, the lead character um rob works at a record store um and i'm someone who's very into music so i decided to take a chance on it um and i'm so glad i did even though it got canceled um because this was uh, such such a great journey uh, on this show um and it's basically about uh a record store owner named rob um who is sort of reliving her her in this instance uh, male character in uh, the book and movie but reliving her past heartbreaks, um, her top five biggest heartbreaks that she's ever had relationship wise in her life. Um, and also, but also telling like a, a story in the present timeline um, where she's sort of dealing with relationships. It reminded me a little bit, Scott, of Master of None, at least in the way that it uh, it's a really smart commentary, I think, on, on relationships in the modern day. Um, and uh, on the one hand, uh, Rob is kind of having a romance with this nice guy, Clyde, uh, who's played by Jake Lacey uh, and is sort of like not really her speed. Um, but the dynamic that emerges between the two of them uh, as Rob is kind of struggling to open up to him a little bit and like sort of let him in um, as like maybe a person that she could actually, um, you know, have a connection with, uh, but because, because of her past heartbreaks. Um, and then, but also she, she hasn't quite gotten over like her one true lost love, Mac, who's played by uh, Kingsley Benedier. Um, who's getting a lot of Oscar buzz this year, actually, for his performance in One Night in Miami. But um, but yeah, and so it's a lot about that. But like, and and I think that, like I said, I think the commentary and relationships is really smart. But also the parts that I really enjoy about the show are just where you're sort of at the record store hanging out with Rob and her two um, co-workers, Simon and Sharice, and their conversations a lot of times about music are super fun. And again, it's just it's just fun to hang out with these characters. Um, and I, you know, I, I really enjoy um, just sort of being in this world as set in New York. Uh, but Scott, the, the number one reason to watch this show, I haven't said her name yet because uh, I wanted to build up to it. But Zoe Kravitz is phenomenal as Rob in this show. Like I am someone who like has kind of like, you know, in the past, some of her performances are like uh, like Big Little Lies. I just thought her character was one of the least interesting ones in the show. Um, 
you know, she's been in other like stuff, probably not really worthy of her talents, like the freaking Divergent movies and those lame Harry Potter spinoffs. But, um, but yeah, like she, um, so, so she's someone who has never really sort of like grabbed me and I've been like, oh, wow, Zoe Kravitz, she's awesome and everything. But this show, I'm now like fully on board the Zoe Kravitz bandwagon after watching um, her because she just like her character is one of the most memorable uh, I've seen on TV in a long time. Um, just like super cool, but also emotional and vulnerable character. Um, and I think her charisma is just exploding off the screen. Um, and so I was really surprised by um, how you know perfect I found her performance. And yeah, I, again, I don't know exactly what it was about the show that um, people didn't get into because I'm watching this and I'm like, this is amazing. This is so good. Uh, like it's it's just uh, it's so enjoyable. Um, I don't see how anyone, but I guess people just never uh, you know dove in on that first episode and probably ever even uh, took the chance. But um, yeah, again, I, I, again, another one I would recommend still going back and watching. Um, maybe once TV shows again, once the well dries up here in a few months, um, go back and binge it uh, or don't binge it. I'm not an advocate of binging really, but um, because I think it's a really enjoyable. And smart series, um, again, with a with a very memorable and magnetically performance by Zoe Kravitz, especially if you're a music fan. I think you'll get a lot out of it, out of this because it uses music really well throughout the show. And, uh, you know, the conversations about music that go on and relating sort of songs and albums to, um, you know, the romantic relationships and stuff that Rob has been through, um, I think is, you know, something that obviously connects with me a lot. So I uh, loved High Fidelity. Yeah, it's on the list. It's not as high as Outer Banks. I'll say that in on the things to watch. And there's a few other things that are ahead of it as well. But look, if the well is dry and nothing new is coming out that piques my interest more than it, it's certainly possible that I get to it, you know, in the next few months. Yeah. I mean, I do think you'll enjoy it because, you know, again, the relationships yeah. thing and Zoe Kravitz is good. But at the same time, uh, you know, I'm not expecting you'll like it as much as me because I know you're not as big of a music fan as I am. So right. um, that that may keep you at a distance to some extent, but I mean, again, I still think it's a great show for anybody. Yeah. All right. What's your number three, Scott? Yeah. My number three is, I think this is the first time an animated show has popped on my list. Um, I've the last few years. It's not Bojack Horseman. I'll take that one off the table already. Although that take the second half of the final season technically would count in 2020. Cause it was January when that was released. I actually haven't finished it yet. I've got like four or five episodes left, but I watched that entire show this year. Great show. Would re highly recommend Bojack Horseman. Unrelated to that, though, I, there was an animated show that came out this year. In fact, it not only had one season come out this year, it actually had two seasons come out this year, although only half of the first season, I guess, was technically this year, but it kind of straddled the line because it was getting the serial release, you know, weekly release for the basically the last month of 2019 and then the first month or two of 2020. And then its second season came out. It had already been ordered and produced. Second season came out like a month or two after that. And it's a show that you know, where I think DC movies have disappointed me this year and, you know, even going further back, right? Like there's very few DC movies that I ever really think about returning to, if I'm being honest. But this show sort of defies that norm. I mean, no, this is not set in the DCEU, so it's not technically a part of that universe, but it sort of just kind of defies the expectations of the standard that a lot of movies for me in the DCEU have set in that it's set. It's like dark and boring, right? This show is the opposite. This show is Harley Quinn, which is the animated was DC Universe is now just that I don't even think DC Universe even exists anymore. It's just part of HBO Max. 
And this show is an adult animated comedy. Like, I don't know. I think that is like the prime way to describe it. It's in the wheelhouse. It's in like an archer or a Bojack Horseman, although it's not as, I don't think it's as deep. I mean, it has deep elements to it, but I know it's not as like emotional or thought provoking. I think as Bojack Horseman is, but what it is, is just a lot of fun. Like it takes this perspective of usually, especially in these animated shows, right? Like you're not getting villains or anti-heroes in these, in these animated shows. You're getting, th- you know, you're getting a Batman animated series. You're getting a Superman animated series. You're getting a Justice League animated series. And this takes the perspective of, you know what? That's not interesting. That's not what people want right now. What we want is something that's like irreverent and hilarious and explores the villain side of things. And what better, you know, villainous character to explore right now with, you know, at the time, Birds of Prey about to come out in a couple months and Harley Quinn being a very popular character from Suicide's, you know, the, you know, torrid Suicide Squad movie, but still like a very, I think, a bright character in in that, you know, shitstorm for the lack of a better way to put it. But Harley Quinn takes center stage here. She's not voiced by Margot Robbie. She's voiced by Kaylee Cuoco, um, who also has another HBO Max show that came out this year that was been, has been very popular. But she voices the the titular character there. And then Lake Bell uh, voices Poison Ivy, who is the main supporting character in the show. And then there's, you know, a couple other main uh, supporting voices. Alan Tudyk is probably the next, you know, most prominent one who plays multiple characters. He plays Joker. He plays Clayface, who is a part of... Um, uh, Harley Quinn's sort of like gang, uh, so to speak. Um, he also plays like a couple other characters during the show. Uh, Tony Hale uh, from things like Arrested Development, etc., plays Doctor Psycho, who is another member of uh, Harley Quinn's sort of gang. Uh, Ron Funches or Funkes, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Plays King Shark. Funches, Funches yeah. Um, and then there's a couple other other you know characters in the show that are all sort of like parodies or winks and nods and other things that you know there's the villains as well bane is in particular like a hilarious uh caricature of what you might expect bane to normally be and this show is just like super reverent takes the perspective of harley quinn who like like the first episode like premise setup is that she breaks up with joker and she's like out on her own for the first time and she's trying to figure out how to become you know a relevant villain outside of being Joker's girlfriend. And I think it's such an interesting take on the show, right? I like take this villainous perspective and, and explore these themes of like what it means to be an individual outside of a relationship, what it means um, to like build your own character, to stick to your own principles and like pave your own way. Right. Like so much of that's so much of season one, season two goes a different direction. And like, there's, I mean, there's like big lesbian energy in the show in general. I think it's safe to say, um, and then I think season two leans even more into that and explores sort of like the emotional relationship side of things and like how a relationship often can be like really toxic and unhealthy when one person um, is like more committed or more all in quote unquote uh, than the other person on the other side of things. And that's the direction season two goes while also being just sort of like bombastic and certainly <laughs> irreverent, very gory. It's like very, very gory show um, animated, of course, but very bloody, very violent and it was sort of this just like breath of fresh air for the for the you know the DC universe of properties where it's not dark and gri- like gritty and grisly it's instead this like very neon vibrant hilarious show that like yes is also very you know gory and grisly and whatnot but it just feels like it's just like dumb fun and for me like this show no better sh- like no show better cap captured like dumb fun uh, for me than Harley Quinn, uh, both first, the, both the first and the second seasons. I, I can't even decide which one I like better. I think I maybe like the second season better, but, um, it's really positioned to set up an interesting season three with the finale of the second season. It has been renewed 
it is being produced right now. Not sure when it's going to come out, but I'm sure it'll come out sometime this year because I think the show has been really popular, um, especially since converting to HBO Max, where more people have access to it. Yeah, Scott. This so this is one I've watched a little bit of. I actually I think I watched a few episodes before you started it. Um, yeah, I think that's right. But, yeah, but I think the thing for me, and I really enjoyed it. I, I honestly did. I agree with everything you said. I, I think the thing for me is like that when something is not serialized, right? Like it, it I, I mean, there are there are a few serialized elements to it, but mostly it's like different stories every episode, you know, just sort of- Season like, two is very different that way. It's like okay. very serial in season two. Yeah, uh, that that is like, I struggle to get hooked on a show that is not uh, super seri serialized, but yeah, I, I could totally see, I, I do want to go back to this. And if, I do think this is like something I could just like watch before bed or something, because you know, it's short That's episode. That's the way I watched it, yeah. Um, yeah, you can kind of turn off your brain a little bit. And I totally agree that this is the direction that DC especially needs to be going in because my problem with a lot of their movies is that they're so self-serious and dull. Um, and actually, you know, why I loved the Birds of Prey movie, why I really enjoyed the Birds of Prey movie the most um, because I thought it was just pure fun. And I, I think the same about this series. Um, and yeah, surprised about how um, how adult how 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 you know much tar it is targeted at adults but uh you know not not in a bad way i wouldn't I mean, show this to my kid this show is like it's <laughs> like yeah. so irreverent as much it's as i don't crazy. watch a ton of animated movies like you know you mentioned bojack horseman like that's i think one of the greatest shows of all time in my opinion um and then um you know uh, other you know stuff like this i think adult animated series are, are something that appeals to me so yeah i can't recommend it highly enough if you have hbo max and you want a new like adult comedy type show animated show like i mean if you're a fan of archer or something like that like you'll really enjoy this yeah uh okay scott my number three and this is one that you know you're cramming in the undoing this morning and i was actually crammed in the last episode and had crammed in the last couple episodes over the past few days which is not something i normally do i usually like to when i'm really enjoying something to sort of savor it and try to make it last as long as possible um but i wanted to get it in so that i could talk about the entire season uh for this uh show or for this podcast um and i'm cheating a little bit because the show technically uh premiered in 2019 but it premiered on youtube red right which was the sort of premium streaming service that youtube they don't even have it anymore but uh they, yeah, they, sold, off, they sold off all their shows to netflix and amazon like cobra kai yeah, exactly. netflix now, right that's what i was going to say the, the only show that you probably would have heard of from it was cobra kai which is now a big hit if it's a big hit because it moved to netflix because um, now people are actually watching it exactly um <laughs> And, but so this show, again, like I said, it, it premiered on YouTube Red in uh, 2019 and it got a lot of good critical buzz, but nobody watched it. But it has since in, in November of this year, it has moved to Amazon Prime. The reason I found out about the show is because uh, Doug Benson on Doug Loves Movies, which is, uh, you know, a podcast I've listened to for many, many years. Um, he recently had the creator of the show, uh, Sean Simmons, um, and two of the supporting actors, Michael Malley and Stephen Kieran, on an episode to talk about Wayne, because Doug watched the show. Oh, I just said the name of the show, I guess, before I had said it, but the show is called Wayne. Um, but yeah, so he had, because he, Doug really watched it and loved Wayne, and he wanted more people to, to find out about the show. Um, and that's kind of another reason why I wanted to mention it here, right? Because uh, some of the actors and stuff have been tweeting too that, hey, if, you know, Amazon has said, if, you, you know, enough people watch this now that it's moved to Amazon Prime, then we'll get the second season. And, you know, if you believe what Sean Simmons, the creator of the show, said on Doug Loves Movies, uh, it sounds like talks, things are looking good for a second season at right now. He was, I mean, you know, he didn't want to go all the way and say that it, uh, you know, it's, it's happening, but he said things are looking good. 
So that means maybe people are watching it and enjoying it, enjoying it. Um, and personally, I enjoyed the heck out of it. And yeah, the show is called Wayne, uh, as in, you know, the, the, the men's name, Wayne, uh, like Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, but uh, as you can I'm imagine, curious what you thought the people would confuse it with. I don't know, like W-A-I-N or, or something. Like Wax and Wayne or something like that. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, that too. Um, but uh, but yeah, so Wayne is the name of the show. And, you know, I mentioned those supporting actors who are on there. But the show stars Mark McKenna, who my fellow Sing Street fans will know as Eamon from Sing Street. Um, and... Uh, and Sierra Bravo, or those are kind of the two main actors. So Mark McKenna plays Wayne and Sierra Bravo plays Bell. Um, and the show is set, it starts off in Boston. They're sort of both from um, like Southie area, like, you know, strong Boston accents and like um, these sort of like, I guess like white trash people in a way that um, they grow up around, uh, particularly Dell's family, her her father, who's played by Dean Norris, and then her two brothers, who her two twin brothers, who are just idiots and are absolutely hilarious the entire show, but are they're just absolute nimrods. But um, but so they but uh, Wayne lives with his father, who's very sick. His father actually passed away in the first episode, uh, and uh, Wayne sort of makes it his mission to uh, go get this car back that was stolen from his father. Um, that has been that is inferred now. Um, and, uh, he's a very interesting character, Wayne, cause he's, he's definitely a loner. He's like, doesn't say a lot. Um, and is sort of clueless about a lot of things in the world. Uh, but like he has a good heart. You can see that from the beginning, but he doesn't know how to act on his good intentions in the appropriate way. And a lot of times ends up using violence. Uh, he's, we learned very early on that he's very violent and will just like, again, resorts to violence to sort of solve any situation, which is kind of, a funny dynamic because Mark McKenna is a small guy, but um, you know they they established pretty clearly on uh, early on that he you know he could go up against pretty much anyone in a fight because you get the sense that you know he's had to deal with violent situations a lot in his life in his young life. But um, but he encountered L, uh, who is Sierra Bravo's character. She just sort of comes to his door one day selling Girl Scout cookies, and they have a sort of very quirky meet cute um, and. Dell obviously, like I said, lives with her father and two twin brothers, and they're, you know, borderline abusive to her. So she wants out of their, that life as well and ends up accompanying Wayne on his road trip. And, you know, I said the show is about him trying to get his car back, uh, his dad's car back. And, yeah, you know, that is the end goal. But as you'd expect, you know, this is a road trip um, show. And so a lot of it is about the lessons they learn along the way, the characters they meet, and these sort of like side stories that occur um on their journey to florida um and of course the deepening relationship that happens between wayne and dell um and the reason i like got into this uh that i decided to take a chance in the show after listening to douglas movies is that the creator sean simmons said it had like some link latery vibes to it like he was going for some link latery vibes to it um and i definitely think the area that you see that is in the side characters right like the characters that just pop up for like one episode even like which every show right has those characters who just like pop up for one episode well these these are some of the less like richly drawn like one-off characters that you will find in any show like it they really feel like you know as soon as these characters are introduced it's like this person has been existing long before you know this episode and they will continue to exist long after they disappear from this show like that's how lived in the characters feel like and 
you know, there are there are a lot of times that these like, again, side characters will pop up for one or two episodes. And you're like, wow, I would really watch an entire series about just this one character. Like there's these two uh, like high school students that they encounter in Georgia who are really funny. And uh, like even like Stephen Kieran, who has a little bit of a bigger role, he's the cop who ends up trying to track down Wayne. Uh, and Dell. He's also, I think, a great character and um, has a speech in the last episode, which is like an incredible monologue. Um, and that made me want like a whole um, series just about him. And Mike O'Malley is the principal that I mentioned. But uh, yeah, this show, it's it's not for everyone. Definitely. It's dark. It's very violent. Um, and but I think like and it's quirky, but it's like the right amount of quirky. It's not to where it is like forced or like, you know, they're 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 trying to go for some sort of you know, affected level of quirk. Uh, I think it's it's in a way that feels natural. And like I said, I think Wayne is a character that we don't really see portrayed a lot, even in teen series. Um, I think he, there's a lot of unique things about him emotionally. And Dell is, I, I mean, I think Sierra Bravo is like the revelation to me from the cast. I think she's absolutely great. Like her personality, um, like she has like the the Boston attitude, like very outspoken from the very beginning. And it's a nice compliment to Wayne. And uh, she definitely gets a ton of great moments throughout the series where she gets to like put people in um, her place and everything. And I, I was really like sort of touched by the end, by the uh, relationship that forms between the two of them. I, I thought that was you know the strongest element of the show. In addition to, like I said, the really well-written um, side characters. So Please take a chance on Wayne. It deserves second season. It did. It definitely does have a cliffhanger at the end of the first season. Um, and so I definitely want, think the story needs to be continued. Um, even though when you just hear the setup, like I said, you might think it has a definite beginning, middle and end. Um, there is, there are places for it to go. I think it's season two. Um, and I hope it gets that chance. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited that I got the opportunity to talk about Wayne and thank you to Doug Benson uh, and to, Sean Simmons, the creator, for selling me on this show because it's definitely one of my favorite things I've watched this year. Very cool. It's also not that long. Like, it's like half hour episodes, right? It's not that long. Yeah, for the for the most part. Yeah, usually between 30 and 40 minutes are most episodes, and it's uh, 10 episodes. So, um, yeah. It goes quickly. It does. It's yeah. not, uh, you know, it's not Lovecraft Country, which is like pushing an hour every single episode and heavy as crap. Right. No, again, again, even though it is like violent, it's dark. It, it touches on some dark ideas and stuff. It's very fun. Like, it's very, very funny as well. Like, it is a dark com comedy is probably like the number one genre, I would say, that it falls into. Um, so, uh, yeah, you, you will definitely laugh a lot in the series. Uh, again, a lot of that comes from the sort of fun and um, unique supporting characters that pop up. So. All right, Scott. Uh, <laughs> Well, I think our lists are full up now. So let's talk about our top two shows, which uh, we actually share our top two this year. So our number twos are the same and our number ones are the same. Why don't I introduce our number two and then I'll let you introduce our number one. Um, I think that's that seems fair uh, because right. you've watched our number one show a couple of times and- um, Guilty. I Yeah, uh, I mean, I, again, we're both big stands for both of these shows, but- Number two for both of us is The Queen's Gambit, um, which is a sh another show that I think most people will have heard of. Uh, it was a really surprise hit for Netflix. I'm not sure that Netflix knew exactly what they had. Uh, I mean, I think they knew that maybe that they had an awards contender um, with this show because of the names that are attached to it. Um, but I'm not sure that they thought that this show would take off like with audiences as uh, it has. But it absolutely has. Like what? 
what did I see? Like 60 something million or 600 million. I don't, I don't even remember what the number was, but like it was, it was, it was 60 million, like 64 or 66 million. It wasn't 600 million. I promise you that. It wasn't 600. I don't know why I thought that, but uh, it was like 66 million homes or something have watched this, making it like one of the most watched shows, if not the most watched of the year. But um, except for Tiger King, the, it, like Netflix's year, right? Was yeah. Tiger King. I knew it was behind the Queen's yeah. Gambit. Yeah. But the reason why you wouldn't expect this show to take off necessarily is because of the subject matter. Um, this is a period piece about a female chess player um, in like the 60s, I think, um, in in the U.S. Um, but uh, yeah, it's created by Scott. The showrunner like is Scott. The 50s Frank. and 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's based off uh, a novel by um, Walter Tevis. Walters. Walter Tevis. Yeah. Uh, called the Queen's Gambit, but it is it is a coming of age story set over many years um, about this girl named Beth Harmon, who again becomes a chess prodigy, a female chess prodigy. Um, the show starts with her at a young age being put into this sort of orphanage, um, and she develops a drug addiction uh, at a very young age, which becomes an element of the show that I think is handled pretty well. Um, that you know affects her over time. Uh, and she, but she begins she to love the game of chess um, when she's introduced to it by the janitor at the uh, the school played by the, the orphanage played by the always amazing Bill Camp. Um, and soon, you know, she she starts studying the game. Her her pills that she takes helps her to see ch like visualize chess boards. And there's a lot of imagery with her laying in bed at night, looking up at the sky, the ceiling and visualizing chess boards and playing through imaginary games in her head. And. You know, through through doing this, she quickly becomes better than Bill Camp as the janitor. He decides he's going to sort of like take her under his wing a little bit. He gets her into some tournaments. Um, and as she grows up, she starts to make a career out of this. She eventually is adopted um, by this sort of lonely woman played by Marielle Heller, the director, um, in a very, very good performance, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, her mother ends up, you know, being a character for a little bit. And they sort of have this jet set life traveling around the world. Uh, going to chess tournaments, um, and um, and then uh, she also meets. Uh, there are a bunch of men who come into her orbit as well. The main ones being um, Thomas Brody Sangster um, as Benny Watts and uh, Harry Melling as uh, Harry Beltic, um, who is you know sort of. I, I I thought he was the one of the most interesting characters as well. I really liked that Harry Melling's performance and his character arc. I think is interesting as sort of the guy who realizes he's not going to be able to make a career off of playing this game for his whole life, um, which I think is some perspective that Beth um, sort of needs at a, at a crucial point in the show. But I haven't, again, I'm, I'm hiding the ball here, but uh, playing Beth is Anya Taylor-Joy, who is, I mean, I think the best actress, best young actress working now. They, like this solidifies it. Of course, if you listen to some Like It, Scott, you know that Scott and I have been big fans of her since like Thoroughbreds um, a couple of years ago. Um, but I mean, I, I think, I think this just takes her, her, uh, stardom to a whole new level for me. This is, this is the leading I mean, this role. Is her breakout role. I mean, this is, yeah. it. this is, this is her breakout role. Yeah. The, you know, this is the, the, the leading role that she has deserved. And I think is going to lead to, I mean, she's already, uh, before this, she was already attached to bigger things. I mean, big projects with Mad Max, with the Furiosa movie, with last night in Soho, the Edgar Wright movie that's coming out. Um, so she's got some big projects coming out soon, but I think, this is going to open even more doors for her because of how how popular the show has been and how much people have enjoyed her performance. I just think she does like the confidence 
the confident like exterior, but like the emotionally vulnerable interior like that. I think that's the thing that you see in a lot of her characters that she just does incredibly well. Um, so it has such a dynamic presence on screen. I think just again, it's one of those people who just like walks into the room and like no matter what actor she's in the room with, no matter who she's going up against, she commands your attention, which I think is something that not a lot of actors have. But um, I think she's exceptional and has a very good chance to win um, a lot of awards for her performance here as Beth, I think. Um, but yeah, this show is, it's classy. It is um, surprisingly entertaining for a show about female uh, chess players. It, you know, it's a, it's a good, like, epic story, period details. I think the period is beautifully rendered. Uh, and, you know, again, that performance by Anya Taylor-Joy is, is out of this world. And um, yeah, this, this thing blew me away pretty early on and it just kept getting better and better leading up to that final episode, which I think is, um, it's a little bit of uh, wish fulfillment, I guess is what you would call it. But I think, I think the show earned it for, you know, the journey that it takes us on. And also I think, you know, in 2020, when things weren't going so well, a lot of the time, it just felt good to see um, things wrap up in this sort of satisfying way that you want for the characters. So, um, you know, I, I, I love seeing people talk about the show and how much they've enjoyed it. Like it's crazy the amount of people that the show has reached, like even some of the like redneck Tennessee fans and stuff that I, uh, follow on Twitter, like the last people who I ever thought would have watched this kind of show have been talking about, um, how great it is. So, uh, yeah, this was one of the sleeper hits of, uh, of 2020 for sure. And I look forward to it receiving, hopefully receiving a lot of awards uh, for the future. And, you know, again, jumpstarting Anya Taylor-Joy to even bigger and even better things because uh, she's about the best we got right now. Yeah, I mean, this show is fantastic, Scott. I, you know, as much as I like my three, four, five, my honorable mentions, like, I think there was a clear distinction between this show and yeah. our number one and everything else. And I think that is also true from a majority of the movies that I've seen too. Like I, to this day, I still think that this show and then our number one are still the two best things that I've seen that have come out in 2020 so far. I don't know. I don't necessarily think that will hold as I see some of, you know, the heaviest hitters still to come, but on the movie side, but look like this show is phenomenal to call it sort of mesmerizing. I think is an understatement. Like you don't get very much of Anya Taylor joy in that first episode. But once you hit like the latter half of the episode, especially uh, or last you know quarter or so of that episode, you start to get more of her. And that second episode, like I was hooked from the end of the first episode and definitely by the second episode. Right. And I think the supporting performances are really good. Like I was disappointed Bill Camp wasn't in it more, but his character was really strong and yeah. had the biggest emotional payoff that didn't feel like wish fulfillment. There's that's, a lot of wish fulfillment. Say, yeah. yeah, there's like a lot of wish fulfillment in the final episode, which I totally agree with, which is the thing that I was most concerned about going into that final episode. I thought that it might let me down a little bit. It didn't for the most part, but really the first part, like the first third, the first act of that final episode, there is, you know, sort of this, what goes around comes around type thing almost with Bill Camp's character. And it comes all the way back around. Amy Tiran, it was great, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty overwhelming moment for, I mean, for Beth as a character, but also for the audience too who have been on the journey with her. I think Mariel Heller is great. Like, I think she's a very, very strong performance. Not the most interesting character, but I think it's such a critical part of the story, right? Because obviously getting out of the orphanage was such a huge deal because it allowed her to become, you know, a chess, like a real chess player, right? Like she wasn't just playing in the basement um, with Bill Camp's, you know, Will Scheibel, right? 
or, you know, whoever he'd invite to like come look at her and watch her play chess. And that allowed her to enter these bigger tournaments, like start entering like some opens and things like that and, and make a name for herself and travel around with her, with Mariel Heller's, you know, her, her adopted mom. And that's such an important part. But that character also, though, played such a critical role in, I think, her development of addiction and, you know, pills and alcohol. I mean, Mariel Heller's character is an alcoholic. She dies of, uh, you know, spoilers. She dies in the film um, from complications related to alcoholism. Um, not directly, you know, not like, you know, liver failure or anything like that i don't think but uh complications related to long-term you know over drinking and that is something that affects beth it's something that affects beth's behavior both before you know both watching her mother or adopted mother and watch you know, and then her reaction to that is fueled wildly and i think that the story ends up being and i think why it's so compelling is is that the chess like it is a huge part of the show and it's done in a really interesting and, and authentic way. But like so much of the show is also reliant on these relationships that she's building around the chess element of it. And, and that's and that's the thing, right? Like it's like a good sports drama in a way, yeah. right? Because in a in a great sports exactly drama, you don't have to be a fan of the sport to actually appreciate it because they do a good job with the human story. And that's exactly like this. You don't even have to know how to play chess to appreciate the show. I mean, I think we probably both do, but. Yeah, look, and I, I mean, on that point, right, I'm not a chess expert, Scott, um, but I'd be interested to see in 20 to 30 years if the release of The Queen's Gambit was a turning point for chess as a sport, as a culture, um, especially for women in chess. I mean, there's so yeah. many articles already written about it, and I and I hope or and wonder if it has the staying power to stay past, you know, the, the moment in time that is October, November, December 20, 2020 when the show came out and was the most popular that it is. Uh, you know, I certainly hope that um, Annie Taylor-Joy is in that conversation for the Emmys. I totally expect her to. We're not sure what's, you know, who all is necessarily going to be competing. Um, off the top of my head, I'm not sure who she'll be going up against necessarily right now, but there, obviously there's a lot of time still for shows to come out in the first half of 2021 and be contenders in that category also. And I'd expect that. Like, I don't know if Killing Eve is going to come back for season four, for example, before you know, before the Emmys roll around, I don't know. I don't think that Sandra O oh or Jodie Comer would really compete against what Ani Taylor-Joy was able to have done here in the Queen's Gambit, but we'll see. But this is a spectacular show. I fully expect to revisit this at some point. It's very watchable. And like, she's just pure star power from Ani Taylor-Joy. Like she's going to, she's going to be huge. We already thought that before that, but I think this just confirms that if you can make, you know, a period chess drama and, you know, if you can lead a period chess drama and, and drive it from start to finish, you can lead anything. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. As good as the other elements of the show are, as good as the period details are, as good as Scott Frank, right, who is a, you know, very acclaimed writer of Amy movies Lincoln. like yeah. out, out of Sight and Get Shorty and Logan. Like, Logan. You know, yeah, he, Logan. Oscar yeah. nominated for Logan. Um, you know, very acclaimed, right? As good as his writing is, which, and I think it's very good. Um, this show would not be what it is without without Annie and Taylor Joy at the center of it. So I, I think I feel a, like I'm on pretty firm ground saying that. But um, yeah, mm -hmm. very emotionally resonant, resonant storytelling as well. It's it's phenomenal. But uh, speaking of emotionally resonant, Scott, <laughs> would you like to talk about our number one uh, and try not to uh, spend hours and hours gushing because I feel like we probably both could about the show. Yeah, look, I'll try. I'll put my timer on and make sure I don't go longer than the actual show's <laughs> runtime uh, as I talk about it, because it's only 12 relatively short episodes. I mean, some of these episodes are like 20 minutes long. Uh, they get as long as like 
30, 34 minutes, but most of these episodes are under 30 minutes. Um, it became a show that when it first came out in, I think, late April, I didn't immediately attach to it. I think you might, you definitely watched it before I did. I think you might have watched it very shortly after it had released. On recommendation from a friend of mine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it released on Hulu. It can't, it had come out, I think, on the BBC, on the, you know, some BBC network. I can't remember which one um, before that and then dropped on Hulu um, later on. Or maybe even vice versa, honestly. I can't remember. But it was a show with some very famous names attached to it behind the camera with the likes of Lenny Abramson and Hedy McDonald, who I think are pretty well known, especially Lenny Abramson. I think he's won an Oscar. Did he win, Did he technically win an Oscar for Room? I don't know if he... Did it win a screenplay Oscar? I don't I don't think so, but Oscar nominated. Sure. I, don't th- I don't think... Yeah, Oscar nominated for sure. For sure, yeah. But I, I think... Yeah, I think Brie Larson was the only person to win an Oscar for for a room. But Lenny Abramson and Hedy McDonald, who sort of drive and adapt this Sally Rooney story, and that is normal people. So you know, a show that when it first came out, I guess go back to go back to my original point. First came out, I wasn't necessarily in the mood for it. I'll be honest. Um, you know, I was at a point, an emotional point. You know, early on in the pandemic, where I'm like, I don't know if this is what I necessarily want to watch. But I came back around to it probably a month or two. I don't remember exactly when later. And I told myself that I wasn't going to devour it the way that I did. Um, I was going to at least spread it out a little bit. But I watched this thing in the span of like 36 hours. Um, 12 episodes, 20, 30 minutes. It's easy. When you get when you get episodes that short, it's like really easy just to watch one more. <laughs> That's exactly uh, what I couldn't stop myself from doing as I watched the show. The show's leads are two breakout stars. I don't think they really had been in anything meaningful uh, before, especially not Paul Mescal, but Paul Mescal and Daisy Edgar Jones playing Connell and Marianne, who are new. I mean, for me now, these are like two iconic characters in the gallery. Oh, yeah. Um, Connell and Marianne, who play these two Irish teenagers um, or young adults. My phone background is Connell and Marianne. Oh, my God, really? <laughs> you just, you just one up to me so hard, man. I've had known this. Yeah. I would have my phone background. Um yeah, and the, it, it is this romance love story following two, you know, this, you know, this, these two high schoolers, uh, end of high school or whatever the equivalent would be called in Ireland. It's set in Ireland where Sally Rooney and Lenny Abramson and Hedy McDonald are all from. And it's two Irish teens at their final year of, of primary school, I guess is what they would call it. I don't even know what they call it, whatever. Um, the year before going to college and the relationship that they fall in and out of over the course of that final year in high school, they end up going to both going to Trinity college in Dublin and the relationship that they then continue to weave in and out of and how during their three or four years at Trinity and then how not only just their relationship, but how it affects their other relationships. And this show just has something intangible that you look at it on paper you look at the actors involved, even the creators, like maybe this is a bit going, maybe this is a bit, you know, not quite to the point, but like nothing on the page here says that this show should be that interesting or good. And just something about it, like everything clicks. I think from the very first episode, it's something that is just like all consuming. You can't like, you just can't not keep watching it. And as, I guess from a narrative perspective, you know, one of the things that I talked about on fantasy film fights was a show that I was on, I guess, last week at the time of airing 
is that one of the things that I thought was so special about Midsommar as a movie in 2019 was that it just really explored the ramifications of a toxic relationship uh, from such an interesting lens. It made me really reflect and think about what those elements look like and how they mean. And in many ways, that is exactly what normal people is doing as well. It's exploring what it may ultimately be, and I think is fair to describe as a toxic relationship for these two people who have this passion, obsession, drive for like each other and to be with each other, but how it really pulls these two characters together and apart at the same time. And something that I don't think either one of them can really fully wrap their heads around or appreciate or understand, but it's something that they just can't avoid. It, it is magnetic. It's something that, you know, it feels like destiny for them. And the journey that these two characters go on, you know, first it feels like it's a journey mostly about Connell uh, from Connell's perspective, but it's also, you know, does take a turn towards, you know, the second half and also become a story, you know, quite a bit about Marianne as well. And the story about, you know, two people in a relationship, the story about two people outside of a relationship. I just think it hasn't honestly, I don't, I don't think it's ever been done as well in the limited series form. It's so interesting. And, and one of the things that I've been thinking about more recently that isn't really about the main narrative of the show is just like, this is something that's kind of normalized for me, I think, but I'm have a very unique, like I went to a liberal arts college that is like very pro, like take care of yourself, take care of your mental health. Like there's no stigma around mental health, like go see therapists, go, yada, yada. But like the fact that they had a full episode basically, or a full arc of an episode for Connell about him just going to see a therapist is just like such a huge deal. It's something that, that from my experiences and perspective, I didn't necessarily appreciate until I sat back and, and realized like, I'm not the only one watching the show. I'm not the only kind of person watching this show and how big of a deal that was the way that it handles again, toxic relationships. I think especially from Marianne's perspective and the, and the toll it takes on her and her other relationships and who she becomes as a character or as a person over, you know, her time at Trinity and the dichotomy of her time, um, you know, in rural Island where she, where, where she and Connell are from um, to, you know, being more free. And I think more herself in a place like Trinity and in Dublin. And I think that the dichotomy there is really powerful, really interesting um, and exploring her as a character and like what her motivations and desires are super interesting. It's just like, I feel like I understand these people and, and like under and like feel their pain and feel their angst in a way that no other show has really made me feel like television show has made me feel um, especially from like a romantic perspective. And, you know, I've recommended the show to like a lot of people, um, over the last six or seven months. And, you know, one of the th unique things about this show is that I, I will tell these people, like, you should watch the show by yourself when you watch it the first time. Like, you should not watch mm -hmm. it with anyone else the first time you watch it. Um, and I stand by that. I think it's a show that you should watch by yourself when you watch it for the first time and really reflect and live with it. And it's a show that made me cry like three or four times, um, just like kind of openly just kind of cry. And, and, and I and it did the same the second time I watched it. You mentioned it at the outset. Like, I also watched this a second time. Um, and I... In the same moments in the same spots even though i know exactly what's coming and even though honestly you know what's coming the first time you watch it too for the most part i mean like especially with like the finale like you can feel the momentum of it um and the train hits you with the same impact even though you can watch it watch it coming um is really powerful and there's no show that has been more emotionally affecting and and engrossing to me than normal people in the year that is 2020. Yeah, you know, you mentioned watching it in 36 hours. I just don't know how you were able to do that because it's the thing that I think about is just 
like the number one quality of this to me is it's emotionally like exhausting. Like yeah. if you, like every single episode just like wears you down. I did it like over one week, like two episodes a day. Um, and that was really yeah. all that I could do because it just, it, again, it drains you because you're so invested. And again, the emotions are so vivid and specific. Um, yeah. Even if you haven't been in like a situation or a relationship like this, I feel like, again, like you said, you feel their pain. Um, there are, you know, the emotions that they are feeling are emotions that everyone has felt before. I feel like whether they um, have been in this type of relationship or not. Um, and yeah, you know, this again, I'm going to say it, but this has a link later vibe about it, right? Like this has a before trilogy vibe about it, the way that they're going to, you know, trace the relationship of these characters uh, over time and the way that um, developments in their lives uh you know, when they are separated from each other for, you know, certain amounts of times really change the fabric of their relationship. And, you know, they, they, they're constantly coming back together and then being separated again. And, um, you know, it's, there's just a lot of ups and downs, but also the way that like, yes, the dialogue is, you know, I think very strong, but the way that it uses silences and glances and, you know, body language and everything to tell its story, I think is, um, is just so well done. And yeah, again, like the body language between these characters um, is just like so exciting at times. Like it, it not even, they're not even saying any words and you just like can feel the spark between uh, the characters. And I mean, that a lot of that goes to the actors as well. Like, yeah, Paul Mescal and Daisy Edgar Jones, I think. I, I said this when I like wrote it for a review for our, our newsletter a while back, but like it's the, it's the double-edged sword of like these characters, they created such iconic characters um are they ever going to be able to like out outlive these characters because like you said they they feel they feel like so iconic like are you ever going to be able to see these actors and not think of connell or not think of marianne i mean daisy edgar jones we've talked about um is going to and paul mescal actually we, we've talked about projects that both of them are going to be in i'm not sure that they're going to be major roles um well actually, edgar jones edgar jones is, yeah because yeah, she's going to be in where the crawdads sing but um she's the lead, right yeah but uh, maybe not in the case of Paul Mescal. But either way, will they be able to uh, to live up to this like impossibly high bar and these you know vivid characters? I don't know. I think it's going to be tough. But they're extremely talented either way, and this show was a great um, showcase for them. And uh, yeah, I don't know that I really have too much more to add to what uh, you, you're saying. It's just uh, a beautiful show. I, I love uh, you know these very specific shows you know, shows, movies, whatever projects about just like two characters growing and changing in their relationship over time. Um, that's why I love the before trilogy so much as well. And, um, you know, there are other examples out there, but, um, yeah, yeah. I think for, for us specifically being around the same age as these characters, um, I think this one, um, spoke to, to both of us, obviously in a, in a specific way, because it also deals a lot with like, you know, moving away and, um, you know, get, uh, this very, these transitional parts of your life where you're like, you know, you're graduating high school, you're moving on to college, and then, you know, you're moving on to the real world whatsoever. And the way that that affects the relationships you have, um, with, whether it's friends, whether it's romantic relationships, whatever, I think they did such a great job of capturing uh, that in a realistic fashion. So I, I don't have a bad word to say about the show. I, I know some people, uh, the pacing maybe was a little weird and like, because, you know, it, it does jump forward in time, like, um, sometimes without warning, like you'll, you'll click on the next episode and it'll suddenly have jumped forward, uh, 
you know, several months or something and the characters will be in a place you were not expecting them to be in or whatever. It didn't bother me that much. I think that's just one of the consequences. How the book is too. Yeah, I just think that's one of the consequences of doing uh, a show like this where you have to cover so much time in such a short amount of time in a way. I think the pacing is always going to be a tad jarring at times, but again, that the highs of this show so overpower if you even want to consider that a low that like um, it's really not even a factor for me. Yeah. A couple of things that I don't, I don't want to sleep on the supporting cast too much either. Cause I think Lorraine, who is uh, Paul Mescal's mother, Connell is like, what like in MVP character in terms of just like the absolute, like real talk that she gives Connell and several other characters in the show over the course of it. Her name's Sarah green. Again, I don't think any honestly anyone in the supporting cast has been in anything else ever yeah. uh, of, of relevance, but she was really good. Uh, she gives Connell some real talking to's over the course of the show, which I think are just like, honestly, for the lack of a better way to put it, like, are some real like, yes, queen moments, like tell him how it is. Because, um, you know, he doesn't always treat the people around him very well. And his mother uh, decides to let him know that, that he's not treating people very well. And that's really great. And then one thing that uh, there was a lot of talk when the show released about this type of thing, but and something that we haven't talked about is like the show is like very explicit. Like there's a lot of very um, like graphic uh, sex scenes uh, that are really important. I think for the show and to understand the relationship. Right, yeah, it's, it's not exploitative. Or, it's not exploitative right. or like you, pointless shock value. Like that, that is not HBO of, sex scenes. I talk about the, you know, the intimacy and the body language and the dialogue and all of that playing into the intimacy between these characters. And I think those scenes absolutely add to that as well. So they feel very honest. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, that I think, I don't know if this show is going to set a new standard necessarily for it, but there was a lot of talk when the show came out about how important a like fully dedicated intimacy coordinator is for the production of a show like this um, to the point where a lot, like I know Daisy Edgar Jones and Paul Mescal both talked about this um, about how they would re basically refuse to do a show that involves scenes like this, you know, intimate scenes, uh, intimate sex scenes of the like without someone like an intimacy coordinator, uh, you know, as a part of the show's crew to set up the scenes, set up the boundaries for the scenes, set the environment for the scenes um, that they would just refuse to do this, that type of work again, because it was so important uh, for their experiences. And I know many people like less prominent than uh, like with the show um, than, you know, less prominent than Paul Mescal and Daisy Edgar Jones uh, were in agreement. And I know it's something that Lenny Abramson and Hedy McDonald and a lot of the other like big names on the crew side of things are, you know, pushing for big in Hollywood. I mean, granted this wasn't shot in Hollywood, this was shot in Ireland, et cetera, but it's still a big Hollywood production. Um, even if it is like out necessarily like outside and not, you know, not a U.S. production itself. I, I think it was like BBC and Hulu were the distributors. I know that, but I don't know who made it like element pictures, maybe or something like that. I can't remember, but um, hopefully it, it's setting a new standard. I mean, obviously it's one thing if you're having scenes to, I don't say exploit, but like just to, just for the sake of having them, which I think some shows sometimes have, but another thing, if it's a, an important and critical part of your show, making like making sure you're creating an environment on your show that, is going a step further than just being respectful or whatnot. Like it's actually being thoughtful about it and conducting it in the right way. And it seems like normal people did that, uh, did that, you know, did an industry leading job in that. Yeah. And you can always tell when that like book smart, right. Was an example last year of a movie, sure. like not in the sex scene way, but like that you, you can tell that they created such a positive environment on, on set. And yeah. even I'll, I'll stand for him one last time, but, Link later in Days to Confused. That's if you read a lot about the making of Days to Confused. That's one of the things that all the actors like. 
they like when when they talk about Days of Confused now, they like get so emotional thinking back to it because he was like so they were all teenagers at the time and he was like so accepting of them and was just kind of like, you know, you guys do your own thing. I just want you guys to be people, be teenagers on uh, on screen. Uh, and I think you, like, my point is, I think you can always tell when that sort of positive environment is um, cultivated behind the scenes, because I think it shows on the um, on the screen, right, that the performers are so much more willing to be free and open and honest about their performances because they know that they're in a judgment free zone, which is, you know, what, what I think the great creators and directors can do, which is, I mean, again, I don't even really like Room that much. I, I think that that movie is overrated and is not as um, great as a lot of people say. So I was like, after this was over, I was like, wow, was I really wrong about Room? Because like Lenny Abramson, man, he did a phenomenal job with this. Yeah. I think you are wrong about Room, Scott. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe I need to revisit it along with 500 other movies. But <laughs> All right, Scott. Well, those are our top five TV shows of the year. Is there anything you want to mention that, uh, you know, you weren't able to catch up with uh, any other shows that you might want to, you know, put on the list that you've been mentioning tonight? Absolutely. I think three shows that are at the top of my list that I mean, look, if I had to count them, there were probably like 10 or 15 shows that I didn't get to that I'd like in a perfect world to go back and watch. But I think at the top of that list right now, for me, just for 2020, so not going any further back than that, like that's that are making the top of my backlog right now is a show that won an Emmy, at least one Emmy, maybe maybe two, but I think just one. Um, and that is an HBO show written and uh, created by Derek C. in France and starring Mark Ruffalo in two roles. So he plays both of the lead characters in the show. And that's I Know This Much Is True. Uh, again, came out at a time where I wasn't looking for something that that carried the emotional weight of a heavy yeah. axe that was landing on your head in every episode. Um, and so I, I did bounce off of that one before. I mean, I got, bouncing off would imply that I started it. I didn't start it, but it's in my backlog um, and I plan to get to it. Another HBO show that came out recently, I briefly referenced it earlier that is starring Kaylee Cuoco that's got a lot of look it's I don't think this is going to be an Emmy contender necessarily but it's got a really a lot of really good positive buzz seems like a lot of fun probably will ultimately end up being something like kind of probably that they wish the undoing had been I mean the undoing did great numbers on HBO don't get me wrong but like quality wise I think people are saying that this show is a little bit as actually a little bit more entertaining not necessarily entertaining but a little bit better and that is the flight attendant so Kaylee Cuoco's character is a flight attendant and you know she has this sort of like drunken fling with I don't know if it's a passenger or whoever it is. And she wakes up in the hotel room the next morning and he's dead. Um, and the story goes from there. So looking forward to catching that one really soon for my next sort of like mystery drama, you know, narrative type show. And then the last one is a, another period drama that isn't an anthology, but I, I, my understanding is that it's structured a bit, a little, little bit like anthology where each episode is sort of more, there's more focus put on a particular character um, with Kate Blanchett's character still sort of at the center and that is Mrs. America. That is an FX on Hulu show uh, that came out earlier this year. I, this is one of those that I like would really like to watch, but like realistically, am I ever going to be in the mood to go back and watch this show? I think this is the least likely of the three, but I think those are the, probably the three biggest misses for me in 2020 that you haven't. I mean, I would I'm not I didn't want to put anything on here that you'd already talked about. So like the last dance or. Uh, yeah. Outer Banks, things like that. Those are also near the top of my list, but didn't quite. Uh, but because these three were not ones that we talked about, wanted to throw those on there. Yeah, I know this much is true is a good shout because I am such a massive, massive Mark Ruffalo fan. But I've heard the same thing as you, right? That it is just like 
relentlessly bleak. Like some people said, it's even like yeah. misery porn, right? Like it, it doesn't really have, it's just bleak without a real purpose to it. So that that is one thing that uh, holds me back a little from watching it because God knows we didn't need any more of that in our lives in 2020. Yeah. Maybe yeah, not I, I'd be curious to go back and look at the numbers that this did on HBO because, yeah. I mean, this was a primetime show for them. This was a Sunday night primetime show, you know, like a, The Outsider or Lovecraft Country or Perry Mason uh, from, from earlier this year. And I'd be surprised if it did banger numbers for them just because it's a it's a real downer from everything I understand. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the yeah, flight the is other- like the popcorn one. Right. The only other one I would add is, is The Great, which is this Hulu series starring Nicholas Holt and Elle Fanning, two people I'm a fan of. It's a costume comedy drama. Um, I think Elle Fanning plays like a the queen to be. Very yeah. sort of. Uh, she, doesn't she play uh, like Nicholas Holt, who's like very who's like a very odious king, whatever. But um, but yeah, so that's that's one that I will hopefully get to check out at some. Yeah, she yes, plays Catherine, Catherine the Great, I think. Okay, I didn't realize that it was inspired by actual history, but okay. Um, yeah, I think so. Okay, I mean, that would make sense. It's called The Great, so. Um, yeah, I think it's right. Russian. Uh, all right, Scott. Well, I think that'll do it for this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Where can our listeners find you on Twitter? You can find me at Twitter at shelton 2013 or on Letterboxd, where I'm probably going to review normal people again sometime soon. Who knows? Uh, and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Scarvey Dent. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. Uh, check out our various tiers over there. Of course, even if you can't support us, uh, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, do all of the things um, that you do on your preferred podcast app. we got a lot of exciting content coming over the next couple of months. You know, some of the Last big Oscar contenders, our best of the year roundtable will be coming up at the end of the month. Um, our best of 2020 and our, you know, our some like a Scott Awards uh, will be coming around the corner at some point, too. Uh, and so, uh, you know, a lot of exciting content coming up um, over the next few weeks. So you're going to want to be a part of that. But, uh, yeah, we hope you will. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And we hope you will join us, of course, for our next episode in which we'll be back to movies and we'll be reviewing the new Netflix drama. Uh, for which Vanessa Kirby is getting a lot of Oscar buzz. It is called Pieces of a Woman. Uh, But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time. We'll see if we won't talk about Shia LaBeouf on the episode. Hey.